0: Usually when you hear about foul play in horse racing, it often involves low-profile figures who operate on the fringes of the sport. But a startling banishment for cheating now involves one of Australia's leading trainers. We'll discuss the accusations against Darren Weir. Plus, that whole Brexit thing. It's getting closer, real close. Is it really going to happen? And if so, what will it mean for racing in Great Britain and even here in the United States? We'll have all that and more on this edition of In the Gate. They're in the gates. They're about to move in. They roll out. and they're
1: off. As they move to the public space. It's a head finish.
0: This is In the Gate, ESPN's Thoroughbred Racing Podcast. My name is Barry Abrams. You can follow me on Twitter at Boys or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Boys. You can also get us on our YouTube channel by searching In The Gate Podcast. You can get us on SoundCloud as well. Get us at the iTunes Store or TuneIn.com. You can get us on that little pink podcatcher app on your phone you didn't even know you had. And now you can subscribe to In The Gate in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full In The Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. It was a storybook ending to one of the biggest races in the world. Prince of Pinsen- The 100 to 1 long shot Prince of Penzance winning the race that stops a nation, the Melbourne Cup. The trainer of Prince of Penzance was Darren Weir, who despite the odds is a five-time leading trainer in Melbourne. So it was a pretty big deal when in late January, during the height of the Australian racing season, Weir and two of his employees were arrested following a raid on their stable. The three men were charged with multiple counts related to possession of an electrical apparatus known as a jigger designed to deliver an electric shock, presumably to a horse, to make him run faster. Weir did not admit guilt in a hearing in front of the Racing Victoria Appeals and Disciplinary Board, but he confirmed that he would not fight the charges, and he has now been banned from racing for four years. It's one thing when you hear about a shadowy figure on a low level racing circuit doing something like this, but Darren Weir in Australia would be the equivalent, maybe not of Todd Pletcher or Bob Baffert, but Doug O'Neill or Brad Cox. Let's get some perspective on this and what it might mean here in the States from someone who has covered this story extensively. We welcome into Win the Gate for the first time Adam Pengilly, who writes for the Sydney Morning Herald. Now, first of all, I gave a little thumbnail of Darren Weir and the story. Can you put into perspective for us how, up until now, talented and dominant Darren Weir has been?
1: Well, Barry, it's quite amazing given his rise to prominence and fame. I suppose in so probably only in the last five or six years, his stables has really exploded. And if you consider how many horses he's had under his name, in Australia, down here at the moment, he has more than 600 horses, or did have more than 600 horse, horses registered under his name, who were attributed to his stable, which is built across a couple of different locations in Victoria in Australia, and he has been an unstoppable force, basically, Darren We it's not, it's not a surprise to see him have multiple runners in races, have four or five runners in particular races on any given day down there in Victoria. He's broken all sorts of records in Australian racing, particularly last year when he broke the Commonwealth record for the most amount of winners in a particular year. He trained more than 400 winners across Australian tracks in one racing season, which is quite a phenomenal achievement. He's obviously graduated to have that success at Group 1 level, which is our highest level of racing down here in Australia. And basically, if he continued the way he was going, he's going to have a mortgage on training premierships down here in Victoria and Melbourne for a very long time. And a lot of people in Australia were asking, how can they stop this juggernaut?
0: So take us through then what happened and how it was discovered.
1: Barry, it was quite a dramatic day a couple of weeks ago down here in Australia. It was around dawn. Uh, Darren had spent a few days over in New Zealand for the annual Caracas sales over there, trying to buy some more yearlings to regenerate his stock. He'd just flown back into the country the night before. The following morning at around dawn, news sort of broke that both the stewards down here from a racing jurisdiction called Racing Victoria as well as the police, had raided his stables at Ballarat, which is about an hour and a half west of Melbourne. That's his main base where he has the majority of his horses. Uh, In in pursuit of an investigation, they'd been conducting for months, in some cases a couple of years. And what they did find on that raid was three electrical apparatuses, commonly referred to down here in Australia as jiggers, which are used to give electric shocks to horses to try and obviously make them run faster in some respects as well as an unlicensed firearm. At the same time, they conducted another raid at his property at Warrnambool, which is a beachside town down on the coast in Victoria where he has another base down there. Uh, They found another electrical apparatus at that property as well as a small amount of cocaine. Now, I must stress, there's been absolutely no suggestion or admission from Darren Weir that those... Jiggers or electrical apparatus have been used on horses, but under the Australian rules of racing, it is an offence to possess them in any way, shape, or form. So those three apparatuses found at his Ballarat property were actually found in the master bedroom of his house. So it was an offence under the rules of racing to to, um, have those in your possession, and he was subsequently charged by the stewards down here in Australia.
0: Now, from what we understand, the shock treatment, if it's true, and I understand what you're saying there, It happens in training, in conjunction with the whip, and then during the race, the electrical device is not actually there, it's not present, but the horse thinks it is, and the horse thinks he or she is going to get another shock, and therefore runs faster. So how stupid do you have to be to actually get caught when you're not using the device in an actual race? Well, that's the question
1: that everyone's asking, Barry. I suppose they're trying to have a way of emulating uh, that in a race. Obviously, the the device isn't used in a race, but the jockey can obviously manipulate the way they ride the horse, make a motion towards the horse's neck, or maybe make contact with the horse's neck to try and give the horse the stimulus or the feel that it's going to be, it knows what's coming and obviously try and make it race faster. Um, These are obviously still, you know, a lot of speculation at this stage. There's been no proof that that's actually happened in any races. At this stage, for daring weir horses. But yeah, I, I do agree with what you're saying. It's just completely crazy to actually have these devices in the first place. And then maybe even stupid to be caught with them.
0: Now, what you had talked about a few moments ago that there is no uh, situation under which you can possess one of these things. But one of your colleagues, Peter Ryan, quoted a Racing Victoria official as saying that with certain permission from stewards, Trainers are permitted to possess these electronic devices for other purposes. What legitimate purposes might those be?
1: Well, it's a very interesting point you raise, Barry, because
0: the right-hand man for Darren Weir,
1: who's a trainer in his own right, is a fellow by the name of Jared McLean, who actually runs Darren's secondary base down there at Warrnambool. Now, Jared is contesting the charge. He's obviously, um, at his property at Yangery there, was found to have an electrical apparatus or a jigger on his property. He's contesting that charge at the moment. Now, this probably fits right in the ballpark of what you're describing there and what you mentioned in the Peter Ryan story. Um, my colleague down here in The Age wrote in the newspaper that he was arguing that he has electrical apparatus or giga to be used for cattle on a property that he has down there in Victoria. So he obviously move, moves cattle, has it on his own property down there. He says he uses to load cattle onto trucks uh, and different circumstances like that. So that could be a potential... Uh, Scenario where you're allowed to have an electrical apparatus where stewards give you permission. But at this stage, those charges have not been heard by the Racing Appeals and Discipline Board down here in Victoria. So we're waiting to see what comes of that with Jared McLean.
0: We're talking with Adam Pengilly, who writes for the Sydney Morning Herald. What has been the reaction of the racing community there to this being so high-profile a trainer being caught?
1: Oh, a range of emotions, Barry, to be honest. I think there was, at first, there was a lot of shock, uh, I think then sort of followed a bit of anger, a lot of disappointment. I just think the general racing community as a whole is just really, really disappointed and, and almost flabbergasted with what's happened in the last couple of weeks down here with what is essentially Australia's biggest trainer, or was Australia's biggest trainer. Um, He's a bloke that was breaking records year on year, continually raising the bar, and for him to be found in possession of these apparatus was a massive black eye for the industry down here, and one that it's going to take a bit of time to recover from. I suppose we don't like to admit it, but down here in Australia, we've been subject to some really, really big integrity scandals in the last few years, and Darren Weir is the latest and probably the biggest one of those, and the racing industry as a whole is probably looking back at all these records in the last few years now, and they inquisitively start asking the questions, can we believe that race? Can we believe that race? Can we believe this next race? Were all these records legitimate, all these winners he had? So I think from a whole, the general racing population and public down here is really disappointed with what's going on.
0: For what it's worth, we mentioned earlier about the Melbourne Cup victory in 2015 with Prince of Penzance. It appears that that race is not a part of the investigation against Weir. Is it a part of the investigation, so to speak, in the court of public opinion, though?
1: I think people will be questioning all these records, Barry, to be honest. I think from most people's understanding at this stage, the 2015 Melbourne Cup is not under investigation. I'm sure you'll touch on it uh, previously. That. That race is probably the most famous in Melbourne Cup history, which is our biggest race, for the fact that Michelle Payne was the first female jockey to to win that race. So at this stage, there doesn't appear to be any ongoing speculation or any suggestion that this race is being really watched by investigators. But having said that, the court of public opinion will always probably look back on that race and, and ask questions in the back of their head.
0: What part of this story do you think has made it such a big deal? A big name trainer caught cheating or that the cheating involved what is perceived as animal cruelty?
1: I think animal cruelty is uh, probably the biggest aspect of this story, Barry. You can probably couple that with the fact that he was Australia's biggest trainer and probably most successful trainer. But down here in Australia, probably not too dissimilar to what you have in the United States. Racing is continually fighting a battle for acceptance in mainstream society and the community and when you have issues that arise in regards to animal welfare it touches right at the heart of the community people that are not usually associated or engaged with racing suddenly look at racing from the outside and they form their own perceptions of the industry just on what they see in mainstream news and this case was front page news was leading national news bulletins for days and days and days on end And racing doesn't usually get that type of coverage in the public sphere. So that just shows you that the reaction of the public, and I think the animal cruelty aspect of that was the most damaging part.
0: If you're a trainer here in the United States or in Europe, what must you be thinking when you see this story develop?
1: That's a good question, Barry. I'm not too sure. I suppose they can form their own opinions of Australian racing, but as we've seen Especially in the last decade, there's been an explosion of international horses coming down to Australia for our main feature races, in particular during what we classify as the spring carnival down here, your fall, uh, and down in Victoria, and Melbourne, the place where Darren Weir has been so dominant for many, many years now. Do people from those different parts of the world start looking at Australia and thinking, well, no, I don't want to race my horses down there given what's going on with the industry? Or do they say... Yes, the Australian integrity officials are doing a good job. They're cleaning up the sport and no person is too big to fall foul of the rules. Uh, I think that's a fascinating debate and probably something you might need to ask a few prominent trainers from both the United States and, and Europe. But I think probably the effects of that will probably be found out more in the next year or two.
0: Certainly a story that has rippling repercussions around the world and one that will require some more reflection well thank you so much for shedding some perspective on it adam we appreciate it
1: no problems barry thanks for having me on
0: we're going to take a short break here on in the gate but when we come back that brexit thing is really coming what will it mean for the racing industry on both sides of the atlantic that's next don't go away Welcome back to the In The Gate podcast. Unless you've been living under a rock since last summer, you've probably heard the term Brexit. It means that the British, the UK, are exiting from the European Union. What does that mean? The EU is an economic and political partnership of, right now, 28 countries. It basically allows freedom of movement and trade with no international taxes or tariffs, just the way we here on this side of the Atlantic can move goods from Missouri to New York with no tariffs or red tape. The EU effectively forms an overarching nation over most of the European countries. Supporters of Brexit feel that the EU threatens British sovereignty and independence. Those who want to stay in the EU say that the alliance strengthens trade and investment. Now, right now, as we record this, The UK's exit from the EU is supposed to happen on Friday, March 29th. Officials from both sides are trying to work out a new agreement under which trade between UK and EU countries could continue. Right now, as we record this, there is no such deal. All kinds of industries and businesses would be affected by a disruption in trade agreements, but obviously on this show, the one on which we focus is thoroughbred racing. Could you imagine Aidan O'Brien of Ballydoyle, Ireland, not running horses at Royal Ascot? Could you imagine John Gosden not leaving Newmarket, England, to run at Deauville, the Saratoga or Del Mar of France? Are there any adults in the room to prevent this scenario from unfolding? To try to make some sense of all this, we welcome in Ross Hamilton, the Corporate Affairs Manager of the British Horse Racing Authority, Mr. Hamilton is nice enough to talk with us here on In The Gate. Now, Brexit affects virtually every industry, from gasoline to dry goods to financial markets and, of course, the thoroughbred business. Tell us how you're preparing horsemen for what could happen. Welcome back to the In The Gate podcast. Unless you've been living under a rock since last summer, you've probably heard the term Brexit. It means that the British, the UK, are exiting from the European Union. What does that mean? The EU is an economic and political partnership of, right now, 28 countries. It basically allows freedom of movement and trade with no international taxes or tariffs, just the way we here on this side of the Atlantic can move goods from Missouri to New York with no tariffs or red tape. The EU effectively forms an overarching nation over most of the European countries. Supporters of Brexit feel that the EU threatens British sovereignty and independence. Those who want to stay in the EU say that the alliance strengthens trade and investment. Now, right now, as we record this, the UK's exit from the EU is supposed to happen on Friday, March 29th. Officials from both sides are trying to work out a new agreement under which trade between UK and EU countries could continue. Right now, as we record this, there is no such deal. All kinds of industries and businesses would be affected by a disruption in trade agreements, but obviously on this show, the one on which we focus is thoroughbred racing. Could you imagine Aidan O'Brien of Ballydoyle, Ireland, not running horses at Royal Ascot? Could you imagine John Gosden not leaving Newmarket, England, to run at Deauville, the Saratoga or Del Mar of France? Are there any adults in the room to prevent this scenario from unfolding? To try to make some sense of all this, we welcome in Ross Hamilton, the Corporate Affairs Manager of the British Horse Racing Authority. Mr. Hamilton is nice enough to talk with us here on In the Gate. Now, Brexit affects virtually every industry from gasoline to dry goods to financial markets and, of course, the thoroughbred business. Tell us how you're preparing horsemen for what could happen.
2: Well, we're telling them that on thoroughbred movement, we've got a lot of well-established systems that are in place which uh, have worked well. Um, There's been a tripartite agreement in place between ourselves, the French and Irish racing industries since the 1960s, That currently allows 26,000 thoroughbreds to move between our countries for racing, breeding and sales purposes. It also supports um, sport horses. So our view is that we've got systems that work well. They can be uh, further enhanced in a post-Brexit environment. But it is important for not only the UK industry, but the French and Irish thoroughbred industry and the wider European industry um, that there are no extra barriers um, put in place.
0: Now, what sense do you get that, minus the overarching rules, that the other jurisdictions are comfortable with what you're telling them?
2: They're very comfortable, yeah. I mean, as I say, uh, we've, we've worked extremely closely with, with our colleagues in, in Ireland, at Horse Racing Ireland and at France Galois, uh and uh, with European uh, jurisdictions on a joint approach to, to dealing with this issue. It's not been adversarial in any way. We've been working as one group. we've been making those representations primarily to the UK Government, who support our ambitions um, on on a future uh, system and indeed the circumstances that that may uh, prevail if there isn't a deal reached and the UK leaves um, without an agreed uh, withdrawal agreement. So I think I mean our colleagues in France and Ireland are also making you know daily representations into their governments as well. Um, so, you know, so far, we're you know, we've, we're working closely, but all, all of this will ultimately be determined by the wider high politics.
0: Now, how has the uncertainty about a post-Brexit economy already affected Horseman's plans for 2019's big events like Royal Ascot, the Irish Derby, Irish Champions Day and the big races at Deauville in August?
2: It's a good question. I mean, I think I mean horsemen themselves would probably be able to better tell you what, what their specific changes have been. But, you know, as an example, the Grand National, we have uh, record Irish entries in the race for 2019, which is a very encouraging sign and, you know, a statement of, of the support for the race and uh, generally from Irish horsemen, which is, is really positive to see. But what we've been doing and making clear to horsemen based in Britain is that there's a lot of information out there. We've been trying to pull it together on our website, so horsemen have the ability to see what the potential implications of Brexit will be for them. And we'll be stepping up that communication over the coming weeks as the scenario hopefully becomes a bit clearer, but certainly as we get closer to to the Brexit deadline.
0: Certainly, in terms of scenarios and the timetable, there are a number of scenarios that could be in place by March 29th. There could be a final agreement worked out, a temporary deal that gives the sides time to keep working on a long-term arrangement, or no deal whatsoever. Now, from what I've read, it appears that even in the worst-case scenario, no deal, the same rules and laws that are in place now would still apply the day after Brexit takes effect. So, What timetable are you planning for when it comes to seeing changes in rules for moving horses and people between UK and EU countries?
2: So to take the horses and people um, separately, in the horses case, um, the UK government has said that in a no-deal scenario, horses will still be imported to the UK as is currently the case. Um, So there'll be no changes there. No confirmation yet as to whether or not that will be reciprocated by the European Commission in that scenario. So that's something that we're, that we're working on. In terms of people movement, the UK has also stated that it will look to unilaterally guarantee the rights of EU citizens living and working in the UK and their families, and a settlement scheme um, for uh, EU citizens to register to stay in the UK will open on the 30th of March.
0: Would the issue, do you think, be more of a paperwork one? Say, increased record-keeping of animals being imported and exported, which can cause delays in transit? Or would the problem be more economic? Tariffs, you know, things like that.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think, I think the, main, the main issues that we're looking at at the moment are non-tariff barriers. Obviously, it depends on where the wider the trading relationship goes. There are no tariffs, for instance, on purebred thoroughbreds. Uh, under WTO rules but a lot of extra paperwork uh, procedure if there is delays at some of our major ports then that could have implications for the just-in-time movement of racehorses or for breeding stallions or breeding mares. and also of course that could be an issue for their welfare we don't want uh, horses to be in transit for hugely long periods so these are all considerations that will, will need to happen in a, in a no-deal scenario.
0: How likely, for example, do you think it is that horses would need more blood tests before crossing the UK-EU border, which would, of course, involve delays and added costs?
2: Yep, that's certainly a consideration we're looking at. uh, we, uh, We understand that the UK government has already made a submission to the European Commission for an animal health classification as a third country. Once that decision's been made by the European Commission, which we believe will take place before uh, the 29th of March, that will give us more detail on which of those requirements, as you say, about potential blood testing and so on, may be required. Now, our hope would be that given the, the existing arrangements, the high animal health standards in place in the UK, and the fact that the tripartite agreement has worked well without many major any major disease outbreaks, that, that we would be placed in a high animal health classification. But we're waiting on the outcome of that. And obviously, once we do have that, we'll be able to give further guidance on, on those points.
0: We're talking with Ross Hamilton, Corporate Affairs Manager for the British Horse Racing Authority. Now, horses like people have passports to move between countries or jurisdictions in this case, groups of countries like the EU. Now, you've said to your constituents, I've read this, that racehorse passports would be valid if the EU recognizes the stud book. And I mean, in that regard, the thoroughbred industry is really like one big closed ecosystem all over the world. It's as if the industry has one big stud book. Is there a chance that the EU could choose not to recognize the UK stud book?
2: I certainly hope not, but there is a process that needs to... Needs to be gone through um, for the general stud book to be recognised. And in our, in our statement that we issued last week, we did highlight that Weatherby's the, the general stud book in the UK and in Ireland indeed has lodged an application with DEFRA for submission to the EU Commission for that recognition to be granted and to be added to its list of breeding bodies. So we hope that will be uh, that will be passed and that won't pose an issue.
0: What would that even mean if they didn't do that?
2: Well, I mean, I, I think it would be a fairly, fairly stark uh, uh, impact if, if that were to happen. Um, but certainly thus far, we've not had any evidence from our engagement with the UK government or the UK Commission, or the European Commission, should I say, um, to suggest that they wouldn't do so. But uh, there is a process to be gone through. And obviously, until we have that, we won't have certainty.
0: Have you run numbers on a scenario where regulations and tariffs are implemented when moving horses and people between UK and EU countries?
2: Uh, We're doing a lot of scenario planning about all of the different impacts. As you mentioned earlier, you know that a a big part part of that is no deal, um, as long as that remains a possibility, and it may well for some time remain a possibility, even if there is an extension to the current process. And then even once a deal is agreed, the deal that's being discussed just now is solely around the withdrawal of the UK from the EU. And there's then the final ne- the negotiation to start over what the future relationship will be like on aspects such as trade security and so on. So there will be a number of, of further stages to this negotiation over the course of at least the next two years if a deal is agreed. So. We're going to be working on lots of different scenarios. What our view is, is that when we're providing public information only to our stakeholders based on factual information, we're trying not to circulate speculation.
0: Right. Now, I understand that, but let me ask it this way. Is there a scenario that you've run that kind of makes everybody in that office gulp a little bit and swallow hard?
2: Yeah, I think I think most of the scenarios we see that... If the UK and EU governments uh, understand and respect the fact that this system has worked well for a number of decades. Then we can find ways around it, and I think that's that's our that's our view that you know that there 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 are ways to work round all of these points. That said, you know if if there was a very acrimonious No Deal scenario, then that could have an impact for our industry. But frankly, that would have an impact for for all industries across the UK and probably the EU as well.
0: Now, you say you've been in contact with different departments of the government telling them about the importance of the racing and breeding industries and the movement of horses. In terms of the urgency, what can you tell the government that other industries aren't already telling them about the urgency regarding their industries?
2: I think all we can do is just emphasise what procedures are in place at the moment, what our requirements are uh, in all of the scenarios. And I have to say, you know, the the UK government has a huge amount of work to do on this point.
0: You don't say. (laughs)
2: Exactly. We've worked extremely productively with the teams at the Department for Environment, Food and Rural Affairs and the Department for Digital Culture, Media and Sport on matters affecting the industry, both people and horses as a result of Brexit. So, you know, I think so far there is an appreciation of what our case is in horse racing, and so I I can only speak for horse racing, but I think that our points are being taken on board.
0: If this is a slow-developing process after March 29th, the day that the UK, in theory, would withdraw from the EU, do you see a scenario where British horsemen decide, you know, I can't really go to France or Ireland. It's too much red tape. Maybe I should send more horses across the pond to the States.
2: Could be that. Absolutely. I mean, I, I suppose we are a truly international industry and our horsemen have had, had some really fantastic successes over in the States in recent years. So I'm certainly sure that they'll want to continue to, to send over for the, your major events. And that won't be impacted by anything to do with Brexit. The existing arrangements between the UK and other countries will, will remain in place on sort of animal health transport and so on. So, you know, certainly we are, we are hopeful our blood will continue to perform at the highest level internationally, regardless of the Brexit outcome.
0: Well, selfishly, I think we would love to see more British horses running here in the States, but not for this reason. We really hope that this works out and that Royal Ascot and the Irish Derby and Irish Champions Day are all the the same brilliant fixtures that they have been over the years. Well, thank you so much for a few minutes for sharing this with us. Our fingers are all crossed. I hope this all works out.
2: It's certainly going to be an interesting watch, UK politics, in the next couple of months. I would suggest that...
0: Our thanks to Ross Hamilton and to Adam Penghillie. I'm a very small part of an ownership group of a three-year-old racehorse who trains a long distance away from where I live. So if I want to see this horse in person, which I do, then with my travel plans I must be creative. So when I'd heard I'd have to go to San Antonio recently, I mapped out how far that city was from my horse. The computer said, Nine-hour drive to New Orleans. I didn't blink. When I finished work, my GPS set a course. An excruciating ride it was, and in the latter stages, I wondered what the hell I'd decided to do. Then the trainer said to be at the barn a little earlier than usual, so after just five hours, I bid the hotel adieu. But when I reached the little guy's stall, the frustration melted away. I watched him gallop, get bathed, and walk the shed then stood admiring him for 30 minutes all alone and watched giddily as my little lovey was fed.